I want to begin by sharing something with you that Tracy and I participated in this past week, which was really a special thing. We went over to Reynolds Mountain Christian Academy uh, and participated in a grandparents' day or grandparents' event, kind of a chapel service, uh, with our grandchildren. We were there with Dalton, who's three years old, is a preschooler there. And uh, I have to tell you, it was a little bit unnerving for me to be at Reynolds Mountain Christian Academy as a grandparent because I remember when we started Reynolds Mountain Christian Academy 25 years ago and and I needed to put my daughter into kindergarten and so she started there and yet this past Wednesday I wasn't there as pastor or parent I was there as grandparent so the years they pass but it was it was a special event they had uh, had a little chapel service and the kids sang some songs and then they had a book fair because the people at RMCA are smart and they know if you bring grandparents to a book fair, they'll buy all the books for their grandkids. And so we left a little poorer than we went in. Uh, and then we went to Dalton's classroom, and, and we got to see some of his work and things like that. So there were about 12 or 15 preschoolers, three- and four-year-olds, that were in this classroom, along with probably a dozen grandparents, as well as a couple of teachers. And all of the kids were excited. They were all uh, excited to show their grandparents, you know, their work and what they had drawn or colored or their letters they had traced or their, their workstations or whatever. And with so many excited children wanting to show their grandparents so many of the same things, you can imagine what happened, can't you? It didn't take long for some scuffles to break out between the three and four-year-olds, you know? This little preschooler was showing his grandparents this thing, and, and another preschooler wanted it, and so they just went and took it, and, and then, they're, then they're, a fi- they're, they're fighting and fussing over that, and this happened two or three times in a few minutes, and, and every single time that it happened, um, I watched all of the grandparents and a few parents that were there, and certainly both of the teachers who stepped in very quickly and in every instance very gently and with great instruction said, It's okay, you can share that, can't you? You can share that. You've had it for a few minutes, now let her have it. Or you finish up with it and then pass it on to him. You can share that, can't you? And those words, spoken over and over again by parents, grandparents, and teachers, express a nearly universal parenting value. And that nearly universal parenting value is this, write it down, it is that generosity is good and selfishness is bad. If you agree that generosity is good and selfishness is bad, would you shout amen? Amen. We all know that that's true. When we speak to children, we sometimes say it this way, we say to them, sharing is caring, that's a, that's a funny way, a sweet way to say it to kids. Well, I want to welcome you to the fourth week in this series that we have been calling Get Fit, where, as you know, we are spending these weeks together learning how to grow in spiritual fitness, becoming more godly men and women of the Lord. And we're thinking about six spiritual disciplines as we've been instructed in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, which is our foundational verse for this series. You'll remember it. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train, or it means to discipline yourself for godliness. 
And so we're talking about discipline, specifically spiritual disciplines. How can I work my spiritual muscles so that I am growing more fit and to be the man or the woman that God wants us to be? And so we've talked about the spiritual exercise of scripture intake. If I want to grow in godliness, I need to be in the word of God every day. That's a workout, right? I'm, I'm, I'm exercising every day in God's word. Number two is the spiritual discipline of personal prayer. We talked about that. Again, working those muscles of prayer where I'm spending time with the Lord in prayer every day. Number three, last week we talked about the spiritual discipline of servant Hood, having an attitude to serve where I'm, I'm, I'm simply exercising my muscles by choosing to serve other people. As, as we've been talking about this morning with our campus ministry, we have opportunities to exercise those serving muscles. Today we're coming to spiritual discipline number four, and that is the discipline of stewardship and generosity. The spiritual discipline of stewardship and generosity. I think you'll all agree with me on both campuses that there are few areas in life where we need more guidance and advice and good biblical direction than in the area of personal finance and our stewardship of money and possessions. This is an area desperately needed by all people, certainly the people of God, in order to do this in a way that honors the Lord. The reason it's so important, and one reason is because God gives us the opportunity over the course of our lifetimes to manage a vast amount of wealth. Now, you may not feel wealthy at any given moment of your experience, but did you know that the average worker in America, the average American laborer, I'm not talking about the wealthiest among us or the, or the top two or three or four or five percent, on average, the average American worker in their lifetime will earn $1.7 million. Did you know that? That over the course of your life, you will probably be a millionaire. Now, you may not have that much at one time, but those dollars will pass through your hands. But sadly, so few of us are given real biblical instruction on how we ought to steward those resources with a generous heart and with a disciplined mind as we go through life. And so we want to exercise those muscles of stewardship. And today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 where Paul gives us some of this good instruction. Before we read the text though, I want to I ask a question for your consideration. Going back to my experience in the preschool classroom this week, if that was typical, if my experience was typical, and if as all of the parents and the teachers in that room believed and valued this fact that generosity is good and selfishness is bad, if that's true of, of most of us, why do we think that way? Why is that the value of most people? Because let's face it, we're all preschoolers before we're parents, right? So we all came from a stingy, selfish history. I've said it to you this way before, everybody is born stingy. You know that if you've raised any children. Every child is born stingy and selfish, and so why is it true if we all begin with selfishness, 
Why as we mature, even if people don't know the Lord, as they mature, they grow more and more generous and less and less stingy, or at least they should. Why is that true? Here's why. It is because of the imago Dei. It is that we have all been created in the image of God. You know Genesis 1 and verse 27, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The reason people, even those who don't know the Lord, mature into less stingy, less selfish, and more generous is because the God who made us in his image is a generous God. And certainly, if we know this God personally, if we have been born again, we ought to excel in generosity. I've said it to you before, we're all born stingy. We ought to be born again generous because our heavenly Father is exceptionally, exceedingly, lavishly generous. So before we read the text, let me set the scene for you. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9 about living with generosity, he is talking to them specifically about an offering or offerings that they are receiving for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Those saints in Jerusalem are suffering great poverty as a part of persecution. There were famines in the land, but then the Christians particularly suffered because they were exiled from the community. And so they're suffering greatly in Jerusalem, and the Christians around throughout Judea and Samaria are collecting offerings to send to them to help them. Paul's already instructed the Corinthians about this at the end of his first letter. Go back two pages, 1 Corinthians 16. He's already told them about the offering to be received. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, each of you is to put something aside. Set aside an offering, store it up, as he may prosper. That is, on the basis that God has prospered you, you should give, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Do you see it? He says to them in these verses, look, we're going to receive an offering. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how I want you to do it. And when it's time, we'll send that offering as one large collection to the saints in Jerusalem. So he's already given, uh, given them instruction. And as Paul traveled throughout the, the region, establishing churches and strengthening churches, he has been telling these churches about the need in Jerusalem and encouraging them to give generously. In fact, Paul has been telling other churches about the very generous Corinthians. He's been saying to them, you're not going to believe how the Corinthians are stepping up to this need. They're giving so generously and you ought to follow their example and you ought to give generously as well. And when you read in chapter number 8, what you discover is that that his encouragements, the promised generosity of the Corinthians, has stirred up other churches to give generously, particularly the Macedonians. So look with me, chapter 8. I'm in 2 Corinthians 8. Listen to what he says beginning in verse number 1. Again, writing to the Corinthians, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God 
that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means they gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, for the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's a beautiful passage where he says, Let me, I'm so impressed by the lavish liberality of these believers in Macedonia. They're suffering too. They don't have much. And yet out of their poverty, they're giving even beyond what they're able to give. They had been encouraged by the promised generosity of the Corinthians. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians to encourage them, listen, to match the generosity of the Macedonians. Let me say that again. The purpose of chapters 8 and 9 is for him to say to the Corinthians, you need to give in a way that matches the generosity of the Macedonians. Not in numbers, not in the amount of money they would give. What the Corinthians would give would be far more than what the Macedonians could give because they had far more resource. What he's saying is, I want you to match their generosity in heart, in willingness, in cheerful generosity. And so this is his instruction to them beginning in chapter number 8 and verse number 6. You follow along. We'll pick up the text there. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse number 6. So Paul writes, Accordingly then, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you the act, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, you excel in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace or in this grace of giving. Now, verse 8, I say this not as a command, but rather to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, my advice. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work of giving, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and that you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness or equality, that your abundance at this time, at this present time, should supply their need, so that at another time their abundance may supply your need and that there may be an equality. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, skip over to chapter 9 and verse number 1. He writes, Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry, this ministry or this giving to the saints. 
For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready to give, well, then we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing act, not as an exaction. The point is, verse, nine, verse number six, the point is whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then he ends this chapter by saying, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift or for this privilege of giving. We're going to talk today out of 2 Corinthians chapters number 8 and 9 about the fact that generosity is a choice that we make and that stewardship is a discipline that we embrace. Let's begin with this principle, generosity is a choice that we make. I want you to write that down somewhere in your notes. And while you're writing it, let me just affirm what you already know, and it's this. It is that no one can force another person to be generous. That is an impossibility. You can't even force a preschooler to be generous. Now, you can force a preschooler to hand over a toy that they don't want to share by simply overpowering them or demanding it or taking it from them. But when they cry and stomp and fold their hands, they are not living with generosity. They did not willingly, cheerfully, and generously hand over that tool or that toy. You cannot force someone else be generous. Generosity begins in the heart. It comes from a willing spirit. And if we give from any other motivation, it's not truly generosity, but rather it is an exaction that is being made upon us. Let me ask you this question. When you pay your taxes, are you being generous? 
Not at all. When you send your taxes in, you're not saying, I just feel so cheerful about this and I'm so happy to demonstrate my generosity to the government. You don't do that. And, and to be honest with you, the government doesn't care. They, they're not interested in your heart. They don't want generous givers. They want timely taxpayers. And so paying taxes, paying obligations, this is not generosity. And what God wants from us as we give into his work, as we live with generosity toward other people, is that we would do that not of compulsion, but that we would do that from a generous heart. Look at chapter number 9 and verse number 7 when he says this famous line, God loves a cheerful giver. But look at the whole verse. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not under compulsion. But here's what God loves. God loves someone who lives with generosity and they give cheerfully. Chapter 8, verse 8, he says, I'm not even commanding you in this. I'm just giving you advice. I'm telling you this is the way that you should live. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Do it from a willing heart and follow through. Here's the point. If you're going to be generous, you will choose to be generous. No one else can choose it for you. You must choose generosity yourself. Now, in this passage, Paul notes three absolute truths about generosity. And I want to give them to you. We're going to move pretty quickly, so jot them down. First absolute truth about the choice to be generous is this. It is that generosity is motivated by love. Don't ever forget this. Paul says that generosity is motivated by love. He says in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, I am challenging you to be generous as a means, watch this, of proving your love is genuine. It's exactly what he says. Can I show it to you? Chapter 8 and verse number 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul says that when we give out of a heart of generosity, that it is a demonstration that we truly love the Lord, that we love people, that we love the gospel, that we love his ministry, and that we want to give and bless him, his people, his gospel, and his ministry. And it comes from a heart of love. And then in verse number 9 of chapter 8, he uses the Lord Jesus as his illustration of this love which motivates generosity. Look at verse number 9, chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, be made rich. Jesus gave so that he might redeem us. He gave everything. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse number 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. Paul writes in Romans, for in this way we know that God loves us in that he gave his son. Here's what Paul says, if you love, you will choose to give. That's not Pastor Jim's word, that's Pastor Paul's word. I'm encouraging you to give as a demonstration of the genuineness of your love. Someone has rightly said we can give without loving, but we cannot love without giving. It's absolutely true. Second absolute truth about this choice to be generous is that generosity is enabled by God. Generosity is enabled by God. I don't know if you've ever said this, probably not, but some people might have an attitude which says, you know what, God is really lucky 
to have me on his team. I'm so generous. I give so generously. I don't know what God and his church would do without me. I give generously. And do you know that you've never given anything to God that he did not first give to you? You've never generously let something go from your hand that God did not first generously pour into your hand. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8 talks about this grace of giving. God gives you grace in speech. God gives you grace in uh, endurance. God gives you grace in knowledge and in faith. These are all the grace gifts of God. And he says, see that you excel in this grace gift of giving as well. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 11, I love this. He talks about the fact that God is able to provide us with everything that we need. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 9. God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you having all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound into every good work. Verse number 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and multiply your ability to be generous. He says, when you make the choice to give, you give out of what God provides for you. And as you give, God enables you to give even more generosity is enabled by God. And you may say, well, I, I don't know about that because I'm the one who goes out. i got to be at work at 6 in the morning, and I'm working all day long, and I'm putting in the hours, and you know what? I'm working for it. Well, you are working for it, but remember Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18, which says, but remember that it is the Lord, your God, who gives you the power to gain wealth. He says that generosity is motivated by love, and secondly, it's enabled by God. The third absolute truth regarding the choice to be generous, is that generosity glorifies God. When we give generously, not only are needs met, ministry needs are met, uh, the gospel goes forward, but then God receives great glory out of that. This is chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, where he speaks of those who receive the ministry of our generosity, then praising God and giving God Glory. I want to pause in the message for just a minute and invite Tim Brady to come out. All of you know Tim, and I wanted, I wanted Tim to have an opportunity to share with you today. There you are, Tim. Come out this, come this way. Um, I wanted Tim to have an opportunity to share with you about your gifts to Camp Cedar Cliff a few weeks ago because Camp Cedar Cliff has been praising God for Brookstone Church. So it was seven, seven Sundays ago. That you stood on this platform, you needed to buy some buses. Your old buses were dying, were unsafe, and you had a ten thousand dollar need to finish the purchase and to be able to get the, the buses that you wanted. We asked you seven Sundays ago, would you be willing to give to Camp Cedar Cliff ten thousand dollars? In that very uh, week, you gave thirty seven thousand dollars to go toward those buses. Amen. Both campuses, East Campus participated in this as, as well. So talk about that. Oh, by the way, before you do that, here in Weaverville, did you see the buses when you pulled in today? They're in the parking lot. Our parking ushers were upset because we took up 15 parking spaces, but it's okay. They're in the parking lot. Here's pictures so that you at East Campus can see them. Talk about the buses and the difference they're making. Well, it's, uh, it's an incredible blessing because we're all about safety. I know that might be a yeah. shock to you, having done ministry with me, but we are about safety. And um, our buses weren't the best, the safest we could possibly have. And it's interesting because we are just praising God. We're calling these our giant yellow miracles from yeah. God. That mm -hmm. um, We needed two. And um, we were hoping to get decent buses. That was a 10,000 mark. would kind right. of put us in that 
and God gave us the amount that he did so that we could get three and way better buses than we had wow. even dreamt of getting. Amen. So Praise God. 16 years newer than our buses. As I told you before, our buses were the prototype for school buses. They were like, hey, they had, there was an idea, and we got those buses. So these are fantastic. Amen. And, uh, yeah, we're praising God for them. So these three buses cost just under around $50,000, something like that. You gave 37000 So we weren't the only ones that made it happen. There were other people sure. outside Brookstone who were giving. But you gave the lion's share of that cost, and then there's other things, lettering and, and uh, PA systems. Yeah, I know you got to do other walls, things. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. There's the, there's that ministry I remember so yeah. well. It's coming. Yeah. Talk about your staff. What has this meant for your staff? Well, you know, we're a small nonprofit, really. People look at Camp Cedar Cliff and think, oh, it's this huge nonprofit. But um, every time that there is a generous donation made or somebody comes along or even volunteers that come and help us with a project we couldn't afford to accomplish, it's just like that. We mm. are... We're encouraged, and we're, we're stepping out by faith in multiple areas to get the gospel out to over mm -hmm. 1,800 campers this summer and continuing. So this for us is just fuel. If we can dream it, God can supply it, and, yeah. and above what we were even thinking of. Yeah. And so to partner with that is, is huge. Yeah, and, and, it, and to think that more people than just our staff, our 80 summer staff, are part of it. We're all a part of it now. Yeah, amen. Every person who made a contribution yeah. is going to be a part of kids getting to the gospel. That'll be fun in awesome heaven when along. all those kids stand up and say, I rode a bus and amen. Cliff. And amen. That will be awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, I, I'll tell you why this church gave like that. It's because they love God amen. and they love God's people and they love you. They trust you. Um, but God gave us the ability to do it. I don't think anybody on either campus lost any weight because of it, right? Anybody miss a meal? Right, it's just because God gave it to us. We didn't. We, there was no huge sacrifice for most of us in that. Maybe some, but but I think for most, it was just out of our abundance, um, and because God gave us the privilege to to let Him get glory like that. So, praise God for what you did. You, this is an example, a living, breathing example of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, that when we do it, ministry happens, the need is met, but then God is glorified through we that. We promise to be faithful that we'll continue to carry Amen. kids of the gospel. Amen. Buses. God bless you, man. Amen. Thank you, God brother. You. Amen. Y'all let Tim know you love him. James will take that from you. Amen. So, so wonderful. Well, that's the first um, fact that we need to learn. It is that generosity is a choice that we make. And when we make it, then God gets great glory from it. Now let me, let me move to close by giving you the second part of this, this uh, teaching out of uh, 2 Corinthians. And it is that stewardship is a discipline that we embrace. So it's easy to understand generosity is a choice. I, can, I just choose to do that by God's grace. But then there's this thing of stewardship, which is more confusing to most people, and sometimes we don't really understand what it is. So let me, let me help you with understanding stewardship. Um, if you want to write a definition of a steward out in the margin of your Bible, here it is. A steward is a manager. That's what the word means. Stewardship is management. Okay, And when you think of management, if you think about managing your household, managing your budget, uh, managing a crew at work, uh, running a business, if you have a business. When we think about management, we know that it involves detailed and purposeful planning. We know that it involves allocation of resources, time and, and financial and otherwise. We know that it involves intentionality. Stewardship is not haphazard, but it's very, very intentional. 
So a steward is a manager of what belongs to someone else. Over the years, I've given you this principle. And those of you who have been a part of Brookstone for years have written this down in multiple places over the years. You've got it burned into your brain probably, but for some of you, you're new. So let me give you this principle. It will change the way you view the way that you manage the things with which God entrusts you. Here it is. It is that God is the owner of everything, and I'm the manager. God is the owner, and I'm the manager. I don't possess anything, everything that I have within my hands, within my bank account, within my my home, everything that we have belongs to God. He just lets us manage it for his glory. This is my resources, it's my, uh, my time, it's my relationships, it's talents and abilities, all of those things we manage for him. And so in the same way that generosity is a choice and there are three absolute truths, Paul also notes three absolute truths regarding stewardship. Write them down. Here's the first one. Stewardship, because remember, it's about management. It's planned. It's intentional. Stewardship leads to planned generosity. Stewardship leads to planned generosity. Look at what he says in chapter 9, verses 3, 4, and 5. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you regarding the fact that you're going to give this offering may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and I've been telling them about the offering that you're going to give and you're not ready to give it, we'll be humiliated and so will you. So he said, I want you to be ready. I don't want them to find that you're not ready. Verse number four. I want you, verse five, to arrange in advance so that it may be ready. Do you see all the preparation, the planning? He said, I'm sending the brothers to you so you can get your offering ready. Loved ones, stewardship is not haphazard. Stewardship is not, oh, I'll give a little bit at a moment. When I think about it, it's an afterthought. No, stewardship says I plan my generosity. I already made the choice to be generous. Now I'm going to plan how I'm going to be generous. And so we mentioned this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 16, where he says you should plan your generosity every First day of the week, when you come to the assembly, he says that you should already have your giving, your generosity planned. Planned generosity should be very intentional in the years in which we're earning a living, in our working years. It should be planned and intentional after our working years in retirement. And it should be planned at the end of our lives in our death. We should plan our giving, what we'll give from next week's paycheck and what we'll give from our estate when we die and everything in between. Very often people don't think about estate giving, but you should. By the way, are you familiar with the great transfer of wealth that is coming in the next 20 years? Forbes magazine has estimated that this great transfer of wealth will occur over the next 20 years as the baby boomer generation passes away. And they will then hand to their heirs, their children, who are the millennial generation, they will transfer, the baby boomers will transfer to the millennials within the next 20 years, listen to this number, over $80 trillion. It's an astounding number. And when that transfer is made over the next 20 years, the millennial generation will be the richest generation in the history of the world. It's amazing. 
Wouldn't it be something if half of the people in America who claim to be Christian would say, of my portion of the 80 trillion, I'm going to leave some to my kids to be sure, but I'm going to dedicate some of my estate to grow the kingdom of God even after I'm gone. It would pour trillions of dollars into gospel work if we would simply think that way and plan our stewardship. Stewardship, Generosity, I make the choice. Stewardship, I plan for it. Number two, second absolute truth of stewardship is that stewardship calls for proportionate generosity. This is chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, where he says, I'm not, I don't want one person to be burdened and, and others to be eased. I don't want, expect one person to carry the load and other people carry no part of the load. He says, look, we're all helping those saints in Jerusalem. We're all contributing into the work of the ministry. Do it proportionately. That's, again, 1 Corinthians 16, where he says, you give on the basis of what God has prospered you with. So God has never, can I say it plainly? God has never expected equal giving within his kingdom, ever. There will always be people who have more resource, more ability to give, and there will always be people who have fewer resources and fewer or less ability to give. It's not about equal giving. It's about equal fairness or equal um, equality across the board or equal obedience. This is why he says in chapter number 8 that what I'm looking for is that all of you would give the same amount proportionately. This is why we should give based on how God has prospered us. This is where the idea uh, comes in the scriptures of the tithe, that we begin with the tithe of the tenth. And from there we go beyond that. But that is a biblical baseline. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, we bring the tithe into the storehouse. And so stewardship leads to planned generosity and it's proportionate based on what God has given us. Let me give you the final absolute truth it is that stewardship is purposeful uh, purposeful generosity every good steward knows that purposeful generosity is an investment that we make it's not a big flash in the pan it's not in just one moment it's not I, 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 I was generous last year but I'm not generous this year it is a standard in my life we just make investments in the kingdom every person who invests in, in anything, knows that their investment is a regular, timely, consistent contribution into that investment that has the goal of yielding a return at some point. If you're investing uh, into a 401k plan, which many of you are, if you put money in a retirement plan, that retirement investment every week or every month from your paycheck is probably not that much. It's, it's a portion that you've designated, but you look at it and you go, I couldn't retire on that. That's just one little bit. But what you do is every week or every month or every other week, you make that little investment. And over time, that consistent, steady, timely, persistent investment has an ROI. It has a return that is paid on that investment. The same is true in the kingdom. As we give steadily, God rewards us. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 6. He says, we should, show, we should sow bountifully so that we will receive a bountiful harvest. And if we sow sparingly, then our harvest will be sparing as well. I wanted to illustrate this for you as we close this morning by showing you the investment, the result of the investments is best in a, in a, in a simple way that many of you have been making at Brookstone over the years. Many of you at East Campus who have been longtime parts of Brookstone, you've been making these investments. Uh, many of us have been investing steadily, 
consistently every, every week, every month in Brookstone for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe some a little longer than that. And when you're making those investments week to week or month to month, you don't really, you don't always see the benefit that's happening. But if you simply take the property from which ministry happens here in Weaverville, I want to show you something. Take a look at these pictures on both campuses. Now, this is the property that we're on right now here in Weaverville, 100 acres. That picture was taken in 2005. That was the year that Brookstone Church bought this property. In 2005, it was an old dairy farm, 100-acre dairy farm. No infrastructure, no sewer, no water, no power, no roads, just an old dairy farm, okay? This next picture was taken 10 years later in 2015. It took us 10 years of steady prayer, steady investment, steady uh, planning to be able to just break ground. And so 10 years after we purchased it, because of steady investment, now we're beginning to pull the trees off and cut the property down and get ready, uh, put in infrastructure, build roads and all the other infrastructure to get ready. The next picture was taken five years later in 2020 during the pandemic. And you can see that the, the building is complete and the pavement is complete and the park is in and that is the result of those steady investments. And this last picture is the picture of the property as it is today. The student center uh, completed or within days of being completed. And, um, and you can see the result of the investment. Now, here's now two things I need to say to you. Number one, that's not the result of ministry. That's the tool for ministry. But from this property, ministry happens every single week all around the world. But as you make steady investments, those are the kinds of things that God does over time that you don't see. That's an 18-year span of time covered in four photographs that's the result of steady investments. And here's the thing. There's a whole lot more investment to be made on this property. And we've just been beginning over the last year making investments in East Asheville. And those of you there are investing weekly in that ministry. And in three weeks, we're going to start investing, calling people to invest in our West Campus ministry. And in 2024, in our South Campus ministry, there's a ton of investment still to be made. But I want you to know that that steady investment makes all the difference in the world. Generosity is a choice that we make, but stewardship is a discipline. So let me end, as I have every week, by giving you a goal, a discipline, and a habit for this fourth spiritual discipline. The goal this week is that we want to live with generosity. I hope all of you do, and I hope you will make the choice. I'm going to choose to live with generosity. Why should you do that? <laughs> because as every parent knows, generosity is good, and selfishness is not. So we ought to choose to be generous. If we're going to achieve that goal of living with generosity, then we must embrace the discipline of stewardship. The discipline is that we will steward money and possessions for the glory of God. So I will no longer simply be a consumer. I'm going to decide I'm going to be a steward. I'm going to learn by God's grace and through his help and with help of others, I'm going to learn to manage the resources God entrusts me in a way that honors him and advances his kingdom. I'm going to steward money and possessions for the glory of God. And then number three, the habit then is that I need to establish, if I'm going to become disciplined, I need to establish the habit of regularly investing a portion of my income into God's work. And that's the beginning point. That's where we start. So I'm just going to, every, every week, every month, whatever, God provides for me based on that, that portion, I'm going to begin investing 
a portion of that back into his kingdom. And as I do that, I'm going to build a habit. That habit's going to cause me to manage things differently. And that different management is going to lead me over time to be a person of generosity. I need to work the muscles of generosity and stewardship. 